Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication and this week I turn my attention not to Stephen King because Stephen King has not published uh, something uh, since my last review of the Institute. Instead I will be reviewing uh, not Stephen King, but his son Joe Hill's latest publication of works, a collection of short stories entitled Full Throttle. And guys, preview, spoiler alert, I'm really excited to talk about the, sh the short stories therein. Uh, but before we get any further, <clears throat> I just wanted to read some listener reviews. Um, so up first we have... Uh, Quinn, who writes, Dear Mr. Stephen King cast, a lot of Stephen King works haven't gripped me enough to recently write in. And by the way, guys, this is a spoiler for Dr. Sleep. Um, and I should say that if you have any thoughts on Dr. Sleep, there, there's a couple things I want to do right now. I want to keep the discourse around Dr. Sleep alive because that movie... Um, unfortunately, did not do too well at the box office, and that I think has more to do with a um, bad release date than it does uh, indicate the, the the quality of the movie. If you want my thoughts on Doctor Sleep, the movie and the book, um, just refer back to the the, the episodes, um, the last two episodes specifically in the Stephen King cast, where I was able to to go in deep on both the movie and the book. And as for the movie, yeah, it didn't do that great at the box office. Um, and I just want people's thoughts. I want people who love Stanley Kubrick's. Uh, movie to let me know how they felt about Dr. Sleep. I want people who hated Stanley Kubrick's version of the movie to let me know about Dr. Sleep. I want people who read Dr. Sleep the book and did not like it to let me know what they thought of the movie and vice versa. People that liked Dr. Sleep um, and saw the movie to let me know about the, the, the movie. So those of you who have listened to my previous episodes, you know how I felt about Dr. Sleep the book. Spoiler alert, I liked it. I did not like it upon first uh, reading, but for the purposes of the podcast, when I wound up reading Rereading it, um, I saw what Stephen King was doing and I really admired it. So I really just don't want to see Mike Flanagan's <clears throat> movie just get drowned out. I don't want it to just get swept away um, or buried in the sand. And I'm going to be honest, the reason why I'm using that terminology is because that's part of my ongoing mission to get Michael Flanagan to adapt Duma Key by Stephen King. I think that um, the, the, the marriage of sensibilities between Mike Flanagan and Stephen King would result with uh, an incredible adaptation of Duma Key, uh, a novel which no one really talks about, but I will say is one that has been sticking with me um, since the, my last reread um, a few years back. Um, I, I think that the, the, the location on the keys uh, will will be visually striking. I think that Mike Flanagan will be able to do that that gothic horror. Clearly, we've seen him do that well before, um, and just that 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 character based work um, that that he he traffics in so well. I think that he'll be able to just really get to the pain of Edgar Fremantle, in and um, and his friend uh, Jerome. Uh, who I want to be played by Robert Longstreet. I have it all mapped out in my head. 
I, I just I, I just want to see Mike Flanagan actually get around to doing it. And I, I'm not saying that there's any rumors out there that he is doing Duma Key. There was speculation that he has been talking to Stephen King about another work. And if um, that is true, this is the work that I would want him to uh, to work on personally. But anyway, going back to thoughts, Quinn is about to share his thoughts on Dr. Sleep. And again, if you guys have any thoughts on Dr. Sleep, write into Stephen King cast at yahoo.com. Quinn writes, a lot of Stephen King works haven't gripped me enough recently to write in. I either thought they were all right, like the Institute, or god-awful, like It, Chapter 2. From now on, I'm not writing in to be negative. I only want to write in when something blows me away. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, save this email for later. I'm about to be a complete fanboy. Mike Flanagan is quickly becoming my favorite horror director. And when I did a month-long Stephen King challenge on Instagram, I listed Dr. Sleep as the book I wanted made into a movie most. So this was a match made in heaven for me. Or hell. <laughs> I love the Easter eggs. They were fan service at its finest. I can't remember if some of these were in the book or not since I read it the day it came out back in middle school. But the baseball boy was number 19. The buses were Tet Transportation. The abandoned factory was owned by Lamerck. And the ghost of Dick Holleran said, Ka is a wheel. Also, the whole movie felt like one giant Easter egg for Stephen King lovers, the way it mixed elements from Dr. Sleep, the novel, and the book, the movie, the miniseries versions of The Shining. My favorite thing about the movie was the pacing. I hate when movies get bashed for being too long because you are there to watch the movie, so why not spend as much time enjoying it as possible? The movie was long, and I loved every second of it. And the reason it worked was because it copied scenes and literally exact dialogue from the book until you felt like you were watching the novel unfold on screen. There was something magical about that. I usually feel like the books and the movies are two very different things, but I felt like I was in the book the whole time I was watching this movie. The character work was perfect because Flanagan took time to develop everyone. Nothing felt rushed. However, I missed the scene from the book where the kid calls the cocaine candy. That really stuck with me, and I was waiting for it to happen, but it didn't. The scene and everything that came before it in the book are my favorite, like 70 pages or so of Stephen King's writing. I also missed the way that Danny saw the death flies on his face, leading you to believe that he would die, only to find out Uncle Stevie subverted our expectations and made him breathe out the cancer he inhaled from a dying patient into the lungs of the true knot. Some scenes that really stuck with me were the murder of the baseball boy. This is how gruesome the It movies should have been, not that Goosebumps level childish comedy bullshit. Danny hitting rock bottom, the grandpa of the true knot dying, the filing cabinets in the mind like in Dreamcatcher and Song of Susanna, and basically every scene in The Overlook that paralleled moments from either the book, the movie, or the miniseries. Danny limped from the hole in his leg just like Jack. He was possessed by the hotel and forgot the boiler just like Jack. The roles of Wendy and Jack were reversed with Rose and Danny going up the stairs, etc. Those were some of the standout throwbacks for me. And it didn't and didn't it just feel spectacular to see the ghosts of the Overlook tear Rose to shreds like that? I feel like some of the critics who don't like these scenes have only seen the movie version of The Shining, so they just don't get it. For a diehard constant reader like me, this was I dream this is what I dream about. <clears throat> I'm wrapping up because I went on too long, but let me finish by saying that the movie ending with the boiler explosion was like the ghost of the book coming back to haunt the big screen. 
Our opinions sometimes line up perfectly. Sometimes they drastic uh, they drastically differ. But I hope you can you can find it in your heart to go easy on this one for me. I enjoyed every second of it. Thank you, Sai. Long days and pleasant nights, Quinn. P.S. Post the cock duty review of Full Throttle already. And pretty please don't skip any stories this time. I'm looking forward to your thoughts on all of them. Much love, brother. Quinn, you're in luck. You got it. On two accounts. First, I love Dr. Sleep. I'm right there with you. And two, here we go. We got the Full Throttle review after these emails. So buckle up. Then we have Eloy who writes, Hey, I just discovered your podcast, and as a fellow creator myself, I know just how disappointingly hard it can be uh, to work in and for a void. I want you to know that I enjoy and thank you for your obviously hard work and look forward to going through your entire back catalog. It is great having you as company in the often depressingly long hours I spend on my own commuting uh, forth and back. Um, I haven't even checked to see if you're still putting the podcast out nowadays. I am. I sincerely hope so, but my free minutes to write personal items such as this are incredibly scarce and I didn't want to procrastinate. Best of luck and again, looking forward to listening to your thoughts on our common hero. Eloy Ricardo um, Balderas Salazar, which is an awesome name. Uh, Eloy, thank you. Thank you for writing in. Um, so yes, I, I know the power and importance of a beloved podcast uh, when you need it the most. And as I've said before on, on other podcasts, the fact that I get to be that for people, um, it really makes it, it, it makes it all, all worthwhile. So I hope that you enjoy the episodes and I hope you enjoy this episode. And again, thank you for writing in. Okay, guys. So at this point, with the emails out of the way, um, and I, I'm, I don't have any iTunes reviews, but if you guys do have a thought that you want to share, please write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And if you have a spare moment on your hands, please, a review on iTunes would help me out greatly. Okay, with all of that said and done, now it is time to talk about Joe Hill and his latest collection of short stories, Full Throttle. Guys, I'm a big fan of Joe Hill. If you haven't listened to any of the, the Joe Hill reviews that I have done on this podcast, please do yourself a favor. First of all, go read his books, and then come back and listen to my reviews. The only thing that I haven't reviewed by Joe Hill is Heart Shaped Box, and that is not because I don't like Heart Shaped Box. It's just because I haven't gotten around to rereading it again for the purposes of this podcast. Um... So if you have some familiarity with Joe Hill, if you have seen Horns and wasn't quite sure if that was indicative of the quality of his work, um, go and read Horns. If you have checked out Nosferatu on AMC and thought, eh, I don't know if this is for me, go read Nosferatu. Um, because I would just say, not ha you know, having not seen Horns, I can't really comment on it, but the, the, the at least with Nosferatu, which I think for a lot of people will be an entryway into the world of Joe Hill, where they might otherwise not have have discovered him, it, it doesn't capture what is uh, it doesn't capture his talent, it doesn't capture his voice, his humor, his horror, his particular um, blending of um, comic book uh, sensibilities with classic horror sensibilities. He has a little bit of his father's voice. He is his own voice. It, uh, it None of that is captured in Nosferatu. And from what I've seen from Horns starring Daniel Radcliffe, that that didn't 
that 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 seemed to be its own thing. It didn't it didn't seem to be what uh, what was so special to me about horns. I should check it out at some point. Um, but between Nosferatu, between twentieth century ghosts, horns, the firemen, which I'm sure will be adapted at some point, um, and between strange weather. Uh, and of course, lock and key, every issue which I have reviewed this past summer, soon to be a uh, Netflix show. There is a lot to enjoy about Joe Hill. I will be getting around to Heart Shaped Box. I assume that that is going to be made into a movie very, very shortly. I, I believe that we're going to be hearing some sort of an announcement um, around that. Uh, Scott Derrickson and Robert Cargill, uh, the creative team behind Insidious and Doctor Strange, tweeted out recently that they are collaborating with Joe Hill on a horror project based on one of his works. And if you start to look at Joe Hill's um, resume, there there's not a lot to, to, to pull from that isn't already in... Um, an audiovisual format already. So let's see. Nosferatu, already a television show. Um, Horns, already has been adapted. Um, Lock and Key is already being made into a uh, series. Uh, Fireman isn't really horror, so I don't know if that is what they would be talking about. Um, the, The... the novels within, or the the novellas within Strange Weather. Um, I don't know if that would be. I don't know. I, I just I don't know if if that would be that. Um, clearly, anything from within Full Throttle uh, is is up for game. Um, I do know that Fawn, which I will talk about in here, will be made into a Netflix series or a movie i i believe i believe but it is going to be adapted and we'll talk about fawn later uh in the tall grass has already been adapted i i think that that is leaving a a big hole uh that hasn't been filled yet and that is heart-shaped box and i i've heart-shaped box is such a cool and interesting and well done horror novel that again speaks to his his stylistic sensibilities where he's able to tell a ghost story but with a twist and it's uh it's one that i think is ripe for adaptation so i hope that that is what they are talking about but that that's where i would i would put my money guys joe hill he's got the goods so make sure that you are doing yourself a favor and reading Joe Hill. That's it. That's my review of Full Throttle. No, no, that's, I'm just, I'm just getting started. Okay. So to begin with Full Throttle, um, before we get into any of the short stories, we need to talk about the introduction. Okay. Um, because what I liked about this, um, is the fact that he's following in Stephen King's footsteps. And what I mean by that is when you read Stephen King's short story collections, this is where Stephen King started to hone his voice, when he started to speak to us 
The Constant Reader, where he started to work on who he was as a persona behind the page in communicating with us. Um, we started to see a, a ghoulish EC Comics Tales from the Crypt type of figure um, who was just selling the horror within the pages of uh, Night Shift. And by the time uh, different our skeleton crew came around, he was changing it. Uh, he um, started to pull back on that and just started to be Stephen King, the author that you have been reading about for uh, a few years now. And we can put away that childish persona. We can just talk to each other as uh, author and reader because we have this shared experience. I'm on one end and you're on the other. And, and let's just let's talk. And we start to see that here uh, with with Joe Hill. Um, so he was following in his father's footsteps. And not only is that he's, he's following his father's footsteps there, he, he's talking about, he's overtly talking about fathers and sons. Um, you know, that what's, what's so interesting and insightful here is that we... Not only are we getting an insight into Joe Hill, we are getting an insight into Stephen King. So I had just talked about how Stephen King's short stories had done a, a wonderful job at, at humanizing him, at making this boogeyman seem real, and that he is someone that is working at something to, to give us joy and pleasure and to challenge us and to make us laugh and to make us cry and to make us jump and to make us cringe and cower. And so, but he was doing it for himself and he was doing it for us and he kind of let's peek behind the curtain a little bit when he would talk about Tabitha or Naomi or Owen or Joe and have us understand that he is a man living a life and he shares a lot of the the same triumphs and joys and fears that we have and anyone that follows him on Twitter we we see him very very humanized um, we we really see him for the the person that he is and with this we we not only get to see Joe Hill doing the same thing about his life, but we get to see Joe Hill doing that about his father's life. The, the introductions to King's short stories always humanized him. What a wonderful companion piece this is, because even though King is not the one providing an introduction, his son is the one providing an introduction. And the relationship between he and his father is the subject of this introduction. So what an impacting legacy and how beautifully strange the specifics are of humanism in the voice of a writer illuminated through the introductions of generational short story publications. We first had Stephen King talking to us, then giving us little snippets of his life. And now here comes Joe Hill with the last pieces of the puzzle that make up the picture of the man behind the typewriter, the father. You know, a lot of people don't get Stephen King. I don't mean his writing, but they, they don't get Stephen King. They think he's creepy. They think that there must be something wrong with him, you know, to, to write the stories that he does. Not that they probably really have even read the stories. But, you know, that, that's something that we still get to this day, even though he's been writing for 40 years. And... It, it's this this complete lack of understanding, and, and I'm not I'm not saying this as someone that knows Stephen King on on any sort of personal level. Um, the, the only only thing that I know of Stephen King is from interviews, from reading his books, from going on the Stephen King tour, hearing about Stephen King from others. Um, you know who Stephen King has 
presented himself to be, is someone that cares about his country, someone that cares about his fellow man, someone that cares about giving back, someone that cares about his family, someone that, that cares about health, someone that, that cares about community, someone that, that, that cares about the, the goodness found within all of us. You know, and, and that is not what I think a lot of people think about when they think about Stephen King. And so we get all of this understanding of the legacy of Stephen King, not through the publication of horror stories by his children, but by this description of him as a father by his son. We see him through the eyes of his child. And we probably recognize what we see here. You know, this isn't some, you know, towering titanic figure sitting on a gold throne um, or, or bones, um, you know, in some stately mansion where, uh, you know, his son has to, you know, uh, you know, get raised by a uh, a butler, right? No, this is we we see a normal man living a normal life. They're watching their favorite movies together. Uh, Stephen King is passing on his favorite things and his interests to his children. We see traditions, routines, habits, hobbies, uh, and so what? What a wonderful way to start this. Um, to start this publication of short stories, what a wonderful way it is to to, to continue to add to the the public persona of, of Stephen King to see that he is just like one of us. And you know, the introduction here it it starts off. What is great about uh, this this collection, this introduction about fathers and sons, Joe Hill is is keeping that alive because the introduction here, the dedication is for Ryan King, the daydreamer. I love you. And then he begins to talk about his father. So this generational cycle continues and what his father had given to him, which he details in this introduction, talking about Creepshow, talking about Tom Savini, um, he is now able to give back to his own son. Um, so what what I really liked here is, is Joe Hill is being honest about a about a lot of uh, his his own backstory in terms of publication and how he used to hide his identity. He didn't want to be Joe King. Um, he didn't want to be known as Stephen King's son because he didn't think that he would be able to step out from underneath his shadow. And then now he he's gone. He's come full circle. He's co-collaborating with his father. He fully embraces it. He writes introductions like. My dad read me the stories, his fingertip moving from panel to panel so my weary gaze could follow the action. If you asked me what Captain America sounded like, I could have told you. He sounded like my dad. So did the dread Dormammu. So did Sue Richards, the invisible woman. She sounded like my dad doing a girl's voice. They were all my dad. Every one of them. How beautiful is that? And he continues with incredible ice, um, insights about fathers and sons. It seems to me that the first kind of son is the... <clears throat> I'm sorry. Most sons fall into one of two groups. There's the boy who looks upon his father and thinks, I hate that son of a bitch, and I swear to God I'm never going to be anything like him. Then there's the boy who aspires to be like his father, to be as free and as kind and as comfortable in his own skin. 
A kid like that isn't afraid he's going to resemble his dad in word and action. He's afraid he won't measure up. It seems to me that the first kind of son is the one most truly lost in his father's shadow. On the surface, that probably seems counterintuitive. After all, here's a dude who looked at Papa and decided to run as far and as fast as he could in the other direction. How much distance do you have to put between yourself and your old man before you're finally free? And yet at every crossroads in his life, our guy finds his father standing right behind him. On the first date, at the wedding, on the job interview, every choice must be weighed against dad's example so our guy knows to do the opposite. And in this way, a bad relationship goes on and on, even if father and son haven't spoken in years. All that running and the guy never gets anywhere. The second kid, he hears that John Dunn quote, We're scarce our father's shadows cast at noon. And nods and thinks, ah shit, ain't that the truth. He's been lucky, terribly, unfairly, stupidly lucky. He's free to be his own man because his father was. The father, in truth, doesn't throw a shadow at all. He becomes instead a source of illumination, a means to see the territory ahead a little more clearly and find one's own particular path. I try to remember how lucky I've been. But it's not just about uh, Stephen King. It's not just about fathers and sons. It's also about Tabitha too. Um, Tabitha, who is... You know, I, I'm I'm guilty of this. Um, you know, Stephen King obviously gets all of the attention, um, and Tabitha doesn't. You know, this is the Stephen King cast, not the Tabitha King cast, uh, which is unfortunate. I should I should have at this point in my life read Tabitha's works, um, but what I, I I admire so much is the family's constant celebration um, of of Tabitha as the the the, the matriarch of of this family because she is talked about here on, on this page, on, on page five. My dad read to me about the Green Goblin, but my mother read to me about Narnia. Her voice was, is as calming as the first snowfall of the year. She read about betrayal and cruel slaughter with the same patient certainty that she read about resurrection and salvation. She is not a religious woman, but to hear, hear her read is to feel a little as if you're being led into a soaring Gothic cathedral filled with light and a roomy sense of space. I remember Aslan dead on the stone and the mice nibbling at the ropes that bound his corpse. I think that provided me with my foundational sense of decency. To live a decent life is to be no more than a mouse nibbling at a rope. One mouse isn't much, but if enough of us keep chewing, we may set something free that can save us from the worst. Maybe it will even save us from ourselves. I also still believe that books operate along the same principles as enchanted wardrobes. You climb into that little space and come out the other side in a vast and secret world, a place both more frightening and more wonderful than your own. So here, what we are getting is Joe Hill introducing us to the parents that raised him. And obviously we have the parents of Stephen and Tabitha King, but he goes into detail in this introduction how through Creepshow, through meeting Tom Savini, and the, 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 the thesis that by raising a writer, his parents, also writers, introduced him to multiple influences who helped raise him. We're, we're getting a sense of all of the people that shaped 
who Joe Hill was. And he's not just doing this to just talk about himself. He's doing this because all of these influences and all of the the figures that um, meant something to him, that, that helped shape who he was, his morality, his sensibilities, just the people that put the pieces together that made up Joe Hill, they're all on display one way or another in these short stories. So it's good to know um, what the background is for us to get the most out of the stories within Full Throttle. And guys, if you hear the the, the click, clicking, clacking in the background right now, that is because my furry co-host is uh, walking around. She just got a drink of water. She was chilling. Now she, she got a drink of water and she's sniffing my daughter's toys. Uh, so I'm trying to both uh, do this review and keep an eye on her to make sure she's not eating toilet paper or trash or, or my child's toys. Um, okay, so we also have incredible uh, insights um, from, from Joe Hill here. I was just about impossible to scare, but American Werewolf did the next best thing. It stirred in me a sense of dreadful gratitude. It seemed to me that the movie had put its hairy paw on an idea that lurks under the surface of all of the truly great horror stories. Namely, that to be a human being is to be a tourist in a cold, unfriendly, and ancient country. Like all tourists, we hope for a lark, a few laughs, a bit of adventure, a roll in the hay. But it's so easy to get lost. The day ends so quickly, and the roads are so confusing, and there are things out there in the dark with teeth. To survive, we might just have to show some teeth of our own. And then I just want to share one final thought from the introduction here. And it, I, people have asked me if I'm going to review On Writing by Stephen King. I, I'm not going to. I'm just going to tell you to read On Writing. It's a great insight into the process of Stephen King. He tells you about his life a little bit. Um, but for anyone that has ever written or wanted to write or had aspirations or have doodled and dabbled and or, or whatever if you are interested you should do you should read on writing you know Stephen King really shows you how to do it and and how to make it work to get it done and what's great about what Joe Hill does in this introduction his his advice is so quick and so easy just just look at this if you google how do i write a book you'll get a million hits but here's the dirty secret it's just math. It's not even hard math. It's first grade edition. Write three pages a day, every day. In 100 days, you'll have 300 pages. Type the end, done. Ugh. I, I mean, when he wrote, like, yeah, that is so simple. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of hand-wringing over making sure you get it right the first time. And I, I, I can't speak. I mean, I've never written a book. I've only, you know, published some short stories, um, so I can't. I can't, uh, you know, say that I'm an expert on the subject, but you know, when when there are experts on the subject who do give this level of advice, I think that's important that we all listen. I wrote my first book at 14. He writes, it was called Midnight Eats, and it was about a private academy where the elderly cafeteria ladies chopped up students and fed them to the rest of the kids in school for lunch. They say you are what I eat, what you eat. I ate fango and wrote something with all the literary merit of a straight-to-video splatter flick. I don't think anyone managed to read the thing all the way to the end except possibly my mother. As I said, writing a book is just math. Writing a good book, that's something else entirely. So, I think everyone out there that's interested, just do the math. Do the math, 
and in 100 days, you have something on your hands, you have the clay that you'll need to be able to, to shape it into something uh, worth sharing to the rest of the world. Okay, and with all of that out of the way, let's get into the short stories. First up, we have Throttle. The introduction to the collection helps provide some context to the characters um, as Race is the type of man who resents being in his father's uh, shadow. He, he resents being his father's son um, as opposed to Joe Hill's admiration and pride to be his father's son. So again, what I had just said, the, the introduction really helps to provide context for the stories. And, you know, we could read the stories without the introduction, but I think that these little snippets of information that he was able to give us help really illuminate um, a lot of the truth within these pages. So within Throttle, after the job goes south and the tribe is reeling from the murder of Clark and his girlfriend, Hill writes, Vince turned and saw that Race had thrown the flask into the side of the oil blanket had thrown it exactly in the place Vince had been standing only five seconds before. Throwing it at Vince's shadow, um, saw that Race had thrown the flask into the side of the oil rig, had thrown it exactly in the place Vince had been standing only five seconds before. Throwing it at Vince's shadow, maybe. What starts out as an introspective biker gang story becomes a high-octane thriller, part duel, part Mad Max, as King and Hill serve up a spicy dish of motorcycles versus Mack truck. I didn't know that I wanted those, but the second the mysterious truck appears from behind and blows through the back wave of bikers, I couldn't put the story down. The trucker plows through the tribe, ultimately zeroing on Race, who fails to recognize his father's last-minute Morse code flashing in his taillights to bank right. Stuck on a never-ending straightaway, it's up to Vince to save his son and avenge the fallen tribe. King and Hill weave in the themes of war to this particular little conflict of biker versus uh, trucker um, on page 48. There was movement from inside. That deeply tanned arm with its Marine Corps tattoo. The muscle in the arm bunched as the window slid down into its slot, and Vince realized that the cab which should have swatted him already, was staying where it was. The trucker meant to do it, of course he did, but not until he had replied in kind. Maybe we even served in different units together, Vince thought, in the Oshile Valley, say, where the shit smells sweeter. Or maybe he'd been in the sand with race. God knew they'd called plenty of old boys back to fight in the desert. It didn't matter. One war was like another. It's a bleak conclusion as we discover in the aftermath of the truck's explosion from Vince's flashbang grenade that the driver wasn't some mystery monster from Duel, but a man with a vendetta, the father of Clark's girlfriend who died out of sloppiness and stupidity at the hands of the tribe. So what had at first appeared to be a pulpy grindhouse story that functioned as a vehicle to explore the great what-if a biker gang fought a murderous trucker turns out to be more... Dare I say it, I'm kind of going on a limb on this one, Shakespearean in its tragedy of warring families, guilt, remorse, regret, and revenge. So I was thinking to myself, like, what is the theme here? You know, is it is it family versus solitude? You know, the, the bikers are the, the, the tribe, the trucker represents solitude. 
Um, but that doesn't add up if the, the, the trucker is motivated by, by family. I mean, in the end, is it, is it the, the, the truck is, is the oncoming truck, the, the relentlessness um, of its nature? Is, is it representing Vince's future? You know, it rolls over and decimates the world that he had created for himself. It tears up his friendships, his family, his legacy. It is the inevitability of time. It's Vietnam on wheels, always hounding him and never truly letting him go. So we have some Stephen Kingisms here. Uh, Stephen Kingisms, for those of you who are tuning in for the first time, are uh, tricks and traits and tropes. And I'm applying, I'm just using the terminology Stephen Kingisms um, because they might not necessarily be Joe Hillisms, but because Stephen King did co-author this particular novella or short story, whatever you want to call it. Um, and because, you know, Joe Hill d did grow up in the Stephen King household reading Stephen King works, you know, we, we might see some some patterns. But, um, you know, just a couple things. Killer cars, obviously, that has been documented to death. Uh, killer cars are something that we have seen in a multitude of Stephen King stories um, and in Joe Hill's, you know, with The Wraith. And then we have motorcycles. Motorcycles is something that we have seen in um, in both of their works, in Nosferatu, um, and with Stephen King in the pages of uh, Desperation comes to mind. And Stephen King famously for Insomnia went on a motorcycle book tour. So that's something that we see. Okay, next story, Dark Carousel. As soon as this one began, I was all in. You know, it invoked to me, and this is recency bias for me, but it, it invoked the beginning to us. Um, and I don't know if um, if everyone here has seen us, uh, which I strongly recommend. You know, Jordan Peele has really established himself as an incredible voice in the horror genre. You know, there's a lot of conversation around Get Out, and, and rightfully so. Uh, but, I mean, the... the, the us, I, I really enjoyed it. I really loved thinking about us. But what's cool about us is, is how it starts. The setting is so delectable of this boardwalk carnival um, on, on the edge of the ocean. And uh, the, the, it was just such a rich setting. You just felt like you were there. Um, and you just kind of, what Jordan Peele was able to do was to deliver the, the grit of it, the, the kind of not just the boardwalk, but the shadows in between the stands, the 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 pier, you know, underneath. Uh, you got the shadows as well as the light, and this is what Joe Hill is able to do as well. It also, you know, it also kind of reminds you of um, you know Lost Boys, and um, as he had mentioned in the introduction, again, something wicked this way comes. Um, all right, so I don't want this episode. <laughs> To be just excerpts, I know that I've been reading a lot already, and I haven't really, I'm only, you know, chronologically speaking, I'm only on page 55 of a uh, nearly 500-page novel, and I am at um, just over, a, almost 40 minutes now. So I don't want it to be all excerpts, but at the same time, you know, when the writing is as good as this, I, I can't help it. So I just want to read uh, page 55. It used to be on postcards, the carousel at the end of the Cape Maggie Pier. It was called the Wild Wheel, and it ran fast. Not as fast as a roller coaster, but quite a bit faster than the usual carousel for kitties. The wheel looked like an immense cupcake, its cupola roof striped in black and green with royal gold trim. 
After dark, it was a jewel box awash in an infernal red glow, like the lights inside of an oven. Wurlitzer music floated up and down the beach, discordant strains that sounded like a Romanian waltz, something for a 19th century ball attended by Dracula and his icy white brides. It was the most striking feature of Cape Maggie's run-down seedy harbor walk. The harbor walk had been run-down and seedy since my grandparents were kids. The air was redolent with the cloying perfume of cotton candy, an odor that doesn't exist in nature and can only be described as pink smell. There was always a puddle of vomit on the boardwalk that had to be avoided. There was always soggy bits of popcorn floating in the puke. There were a dozen sit-down restaurants where you could pay too much for fried clams and wait too long to get them. There were always harassed-looking, sunburned grown-ups carrying shrieking, sunburned children, the whole family out for a seaside lark. I'll, I'll stop with uh, that that excerpt um, right now. And, and but Some hooks uh, serve up a mystery. Other hooks uh, create a strong character beat. And, um, you know, this here, this is a prime example of setting. I have never been to Cape Maggie, but I know Cape Maggie. And because Joe Hill is so skilled at providing those minute little details, you know Cape Maggie too. The text is narrated to us by Paul, our main character, and rather than deflating that tension, it adds a mysterious layer to the story. Once the characters drive away from the pier, after stealing from the carny and are besieged by the impossible carousel creatures, it's uncertain how Paul will live. And when Jerry questions whether he'll be safe because he was the only one not to spend or partake in the beer bought by the carousel operator's stolen money, the question she asks is one that should be asked by the horror-reading audience. Ultimately, it turns out no, he is not safe. And what follows is a weird little resolution. He gets to live his life, albeit a darker one, marred by trauma, defined by isolation and fear. But this is why the decision to have the main character narrate the story separates this story from similar ones. It allows for the strange and haunting epilogue of a man who tries, but can't truly escape his past. It is so weird, and I think that to, to make that, 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 to examine the difference between Stephen King and Joe Hill, it, if this was a Stephen King short story, Back in the day, um, in the pages of uh, Skeleton Crew or Night Shift, if, if we got this story, I think that what we would get is just the, 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 the setting at the, um, the, 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 Cape, the, the Cape Maggie Pier, um, and then we would get the, the, the weird animal, carnival animal attack. I don't think that we would get that that human exploration afterwards, where this man is then living in the shadow of the, the, the horrendous and strange supernatural murder of his friends at the hands of these impossible animals, and the fear of going outside, um, of and the fear of, of being attacked by these things, and the fact that they are haunting him and they do exist and it's not in his head because he goes out on that date and there is one of the the carousel creatures is waiting for him and she sees it and she starts screaming like so there's these weird little details that he he adds to this man's life in in the aftermath of the the murders that that is what makes the story so potent not not the not the descriptions not the um 
not the attack itself, but it's that exploration afterwards that that really um, just solidifies this novel or this short story as one worth reading. And uh, then we have some Joe Hillisms and Stephen Kingisms. So Beachside Senior Years, I would say Th- this feels like the the prose version when when he is writing just the, the the life of Paul and his friends at at the carnival and their interactions and their their tomfoolery and their no good deeds and just life at that age with each other um the the, the specificity of how it feels natural but it isn't some idealistic youth where they're all great and they kind of have some grit and some edge this feels very much like the prose version of rendell Locke and his group of friends from lock and key if you want all my thoughts on lock and key feel free to head back into the feed and Hold on, my, my dog is woofing at something. Yep, the wind. She is woofing at the wind. Um, but yeah, you can get all my thoughts on Lock and Key if you just head back into the feed. Um, also, this reminded me of Night Surf and The Raft, two uh, classic Stephen King short stories. Um you know, it, it feels similar. Like, and those two uh, short stories are, are very uh, dissimilar from one another, but similar in, in certain ways. Um, you know, just the, the idea of these, these, these friends um, being close to water, um, you know, that they're being haunted by, by something, they're being hunted by something, that this feels just very much in of a piece with that. And unrelated completely, but this is just... I don't think that it was any source of inspiration whatsoever, but it, it just reminded me of um, some some dark-ass version of uh, The Perks of Being a Wallflower. I don't know if you guys have read that, but that uh, um, that's definitely something that, that kind of made me think of that. And then we have an Easter egg. You know, we aside from the the Stephen Kingisms and the Joe Hillisms, we, we have an Easter egg, um, which is um, Nosferatu. One of the carousel animal displays was provided by none other than Charlie Manx, owner and operator of Christmasland. Okay, then we have Wolverton Station, which is such a cool title. There is a lot to unpack to this little story. The protester component speaks to the ubiquitous outrage that everyone is currently feeling one way or another, whether you are outraged at gun violence the idea of the Second Amendment being taken away, kids locked in cages, immigrants coming over at the border, or the war on Christmas. It's 2019, everything sucks, and everyone's mad. The issues of the day aren't mentioned by name, but Hill knows what the issues of the day are, and it's hard to imagine that the story didn't bubble up out of the soup of constant outrage and protest culture that we currently find ourselves. At the story's center is Saunders, the woodcutter, a ruthless hatchet man executive for a Starbucks-like coffee company who is currently besieged by a protest campaign over its perceived treatment of third-world child workers. And Saunders isn't just your cold-hearted, shoot-you-between-the-eyes company man who will stab you in the face if it meant turning a profit. He'll also make sure to present his past, one more aligned with the protesters who currently have declared war on his company's coffee. 
from Buddhist practice to the search for spiritual enlightenment on an international journey. He was once a young man who loved, reflected, believed in something greater, and sought knowledge. Which is why it's so pointed and deeply scathing that he finds capitalism in the most sacred of spots during his quest for enlightenment. You can't help but think of Don Draper, and spoiler alert for the conclusion of Mad Men, during the final moments of the show when he is in the midst of meditation, and rather than finding his spiritual center and possible redemption, he comes up with the I want to teach the world to sing Coke commercial. The line between spirituality and capitalism appears to be very fine, and in the case of Saunders, when he went searching for the truth, he happened to find it. But no one said the truth had to mean selflessness. And then there's the wolf, the wolf of it all. The surreality that presents itself within this text, um, it's something that, that King has been able to work wonders with before. Um, fans of this podcast know how deeply in love I am with his short story, Pop Art, which um, is incredibly surreal in its own way, but so matter-of-fact, um, and that it's like a, a wonderful dream you know, Neil Gaiman once, or an introduction to uh, one of the, the Sandman stories, I can't remember who wrote it, but they, they referred to Sandman, the Sandman stories, as that exact moment where your waking mind starts to slip into dreaming. In that exact moment when you're still awake and you know you're awake, but you, you start to feel the pull of of sleep and the dreams and it's just that that mix of these two states of being being able to share the same space and that's what uh the sandman stories feel like similarly with pop art that's what we get and, and we're able to i think that a story like that bubbles up from that space as well and and stories like this um stories like you will hear the locusts sing stories like my father's mask um and here we get a story about someone called the woodcutter who steps on a train that takes him to a fairy tale devoid of Little Red Riding Hood, but full of wolves. Fitting because this woodcutter would have sold Red and Granny to the wolf if he could profit from it. All the more fitting that he becomes trapped in a nightmarish um, hellscape to pay for his sins. And maybe not just his sins either but the sins of all of us Americans who either participate in the woodcutting or let the wood be cut. What do we smell like, Saunders asks the wolf of Americans. Like cheeseburgers, says the wolf, and he barked with laughter. And entitlement. I got my little wolf barking right now. Um, it's with this comment that Hill slams together two fairy tales into his thesis, and the surreality of it starts to make sense, at least on a thematic level. So on page 106, see, now, now I'm, I'm, I'm getting through this. Uh, page 106, he writes about the American fairy tale. The American fairy tale, the wolf said. You know the one. That we can all be like you. That we should all want to be like you. That you can wave your American Tinkerbell dust over our pathetic countries and abracadabra. A McDonald's here and an Urban Outfitters there, and England will be just like your home. Your home. I am honestly humiliated to ever have believed it. You would think a bloke like me, of all people, would know it isn't true. You can stick a Disneyland t-shirt on a wolf, but it's still a wolf. And then we get 
Microsoft, Microsoft shares are down, the wolf said, in a tone that somehow combined disappointment with a certain rueful satisfaction. Nike shares are down. This isn't a recession, you know. This is reality. You people are finding out the actual worth of the things you make. Your sneakers, your software, your coffee, your myths. You people are finding out now what it's like when you push too far into the deep, dark woods. And while Saunders is able to escape the wolves on the train in an incredible scene, by the way, I mean, on top of the, the themes that he's, he's playing with here and the commentary on American life and culture and the American myth, the American fairy tale um, combined with uh, the Red Riding fairy tale, on top of all of that, he's just writing a really cool horror story about a guy stuck on a train full of werewolves. Um, and, you know, he happens to, to bring that, that Joe Hill humor to it where they're talking to him. Um, but, uh, you know, he... he while he's able to escape the wolves on the train, um, he can't escape this new reality for himself. Every paragraph after the escape creates more and more mounting dread as the realization hits both Saunders and the reader that somehow Saunders has crossed over into the land of wolves. And while he might have escaped the train, he won't escape at all. On top of its scathing commentary on corporate selfishness, it's also a beautiful love letter to an American werewolf in London which Hill referenced again in his introduction. And then we have By the Waters, By the Silver Waters of Lake Champlain. So before I begin talking about this particular short story, uh, let's talk about Champ. So living in New England, um, most New Englanders are aware of the, 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 the legend of our very own lake monster um, in Vermont, uh, Lake Champlain's very own version of the Loch Ness Man monster, Champ. Now, I I've never been to Lake Champlain. It's one of those those um, just boxes I haven't checked off on my list yet. By all accounts, I've heard amazing things about uh, that that place, and I, I love the idea of a lake monster swimming in the the depths of a New England lake. That is. Fantastic stuff. Um, I'm a firm believer that lake monsters exist uh, because you know we we need to have um, we need to have magic, and I believe that lake monsters are a, a, an incredible fuel source for for magic. And so when I heard that Joe Hill had written a short story about a lake monster in Lake Champlain. I was gung ho. I read it. Um, I read this particular one. Uh, I had downloaded the, um, the the short story on Amazon years ago, um, but I was very excited that it was going to be mass released to everybody um, in this collection. I was excited to to reread it again, and again, Hill could have done two things here. He could have given us, you know, a, a classic monster story where people are being attacked, you know, an aquatic, you know, horror. Uh, thriller slasher story. We could have gotten that, but we don't get that. We get an introspective look that is uh, a little bit mourning, you know, a little bit lamenting. Um, we have something that is a haunting examination on one's future and the death of childhood. There's a lot to it. It's not what you might expect. Um, and here, after after Gail and her sisters are 
kicked out of the summer house for being too noisy for their hungover mother to handle. They explore the fog-filled beach. In the haze and early morning mist, Hill describes the otherworldliness of the foggy beach and the discovery of treasures from a sunken ship, as if they weren't on a lake at all, but on the edge of a vast sea whose sailors journey at great risk for great reward of jewels and exotic rubies. And soon she realizes that the fog holds other mysteries. And on page 117, Hill writes, Gale went on, but had trudged hardly three paces when she heard a sound from across the lake, a long, mournful lowing, like a foghorn, but also not like one. She stopped for another look. The mist smelt of rotting meat. The foghorn did not sound again. An enormous gray boulder rose out of the shallows here, rising right up into the sand. Some net was snarled around it. After a moment of hesitation, Gail grabbed the net and climbed to the top. And, okay, uh, Hill deftly crafts the easy imagination and play of children as Gail and her friends, the Quarrel Brothers, quickly fall into the rhythms of playtime, conjuring a story of the sunken Mary Celeste and the treasures that washed to shore. But while they stand on what they think is a large rock and peer into the foggy water, but of course, the rock is not a rock at all. And then he writes glanced back over her shoulder to see what he was staring at, his face rigid and eyes wide. The boulder they'd been standing on wasn't a boulder. It was a dead animal. It was long, almost long, as long as two canoes lined end to end. The tail curled out into the water toward them, bobbing on the surface, thick as a fire hose. The head stretched out on the pebbly beach, even thicker, spade-shaped. Between the head and the tail, its body bulked up, thick around as a hippo. It wasn't the mist that stank of rotting fish. It was the animal. Now that she was staring right at the thing, she didn't know how she had ever stood on top of it, imagining it was a rock. There is a deep sadness to this story. The majesty of the ancient creature is juxtaposed by its lifeless corpse as unceremonious as the roadkill that you would find on the side of a highway. And on page 123, that's captured here with, I wonder how old it is, he said. Millions of years. It's been alone in this lake for millions of years. Joel said, it was safe until people put their damn motorboats on the lake. How can it know about motorboats? I bet it had a good life. Millions of years alone? That doesn't sound good. It had a lake full of fish to eat and miles to swim in and nothing to be afraid of. It saw the dawning of a great nation, Gale told him. It did the backstroke under the moonlight. That's beautiful. For Gale and Joel, the washed-up plesiosaur represents their future together, one of fame and wealth. Hill had seeded in their preteen childhood crush on each other that spoke to the inevitability that one day they would be together. With the discovery of the dinosaur, their fate had become intertwined. Money, free passes to museums. They'd written their future out as clearly as they write their names on the dead animal's hide. It's tender, cute, innocent, and honest. And yet, their future is built on the body of a dead animal. Which, if you take a step back from the story and look at Champ's place in real life, doesn't even exist at all. 
So for every cute future fantasy they dream up together, it should make you cringe because as cute as it is, there's still a rotting dinosaur right there. And they keep hearing the foghorn. At least, they first think it's the foghorn. When the creature's mate rises from the water, it's chilling and mysterious and thrilling. Hill, a big fan of Jaws, again, reference in the introduction, has been conditioned to equate aquatic horror with mystery. So it's no surprise that we don't see the mate. We just experience everything around the mate. It's call, the surge of water, the missing corpse, and along with it, the missing Joel. Gail's future and her childhood innocence were snatched away from her one foggy morning by the silvery waters of Lake Champlain. So this episode, it conjured um, not just uh, the Foghorn by Ray Bradbury, again, reference in the introduction, but uh, that great X-Files episode, Quagmire, about the lake monster Big Blue, R.I.P. Queequeg, uh, that's just a great episode. Um, that's just uh, just a classic X-Files monster of the week with great Scully and Mulder conversations. They're stuck out on a rock in the middle of the, the lake and they think the, the, the monster is coming for them. And it, it's just, it's really well done. It just captures that charm that the X-Files had and the, the charm of uh, a town lake monster. Um, and also, guys... You might not be familiar with what I'm about to mention, but I strongly recommend it, especially if you have children. Uh, but that is Hattie and Hudson by Chris Van Duden. This is a beautifully illustrated story about um, a girl on a lake. She has a lake house. Um, the beautifully illustrated um, pictures in this book who uh, one day goes out on the lake and she's in her rowboat and she is singing, and at the bottom of the lake, a very lonely dinosaur, plesiosaur, um, hears her singing and uh, swims up to the top to to hear to, to figure out what that sound is. And they begin their friendship. And Hattie and Hudson, it's beautiful. And there is one particular picture of the two of them playing under the moonlight. Uh, the, the illustration is just so beautiful. The, the moon is bright and full, and it's, it's shining off of Hudson's gleaming uh, wet back, and the stars are uh, dancing on the water top. It's just it's it's a beautiful uh, little children's book. Uh, so if you have kids, I strongly recommend it. But if you just want a charming little tale about a girl and her her lake monster, this is for you. Next we have Fawn. Um, so the, this I mentioned earlier, um, this is going to be adapted into a Netflix uh, series or a movie. Um, and the Narnia connotations are up front, you know, right away. And again, Narnia is something that was referenced in the introduction um, through the perspective of his mother. So right away, right away. Uh, part one, our side of the door. Follows gets his cat. The first time Stock, Stockton spoke of the little door, Follows was under a boab tree waiting on a lion. After this, if you're still looking for something to get your pulse going, give Mr. Charn a call. Edward Charn in Maine. He'll show you the little door. Stockton sip whiskey, whiskey, whiskey and laugh softly. Bring your checkbook. Um... And then it goes on to introduce us to uh, Stock, Stockton's son, Peter, and his friend, Christian Swift. 
um, blah, blah, blah. So C.S. Uh, Lewis here is not the only literary titan that Hill is paying tribute to, uh, but also, again, um, Ray Bradbury, author of The Sound of Thunder, a story of time-traveling hunters who aren't satisfied with the game of the present, so they travel into the past. Similarly, with Follows, he seeks not dinosaurs and time travel, but magical creatures through a magic door. Elevator pitch. What if the hunters from the Sound of Thunder discovered Narnia? Bam. There's your story. Bam. Here's my money. The blending of the two sensibilities is immediate, with the hunters launching out of the text with names straight out of Narnia, whether it be the specifically named Peter or the thematically named Christian. Now, for those of you who are unaware, C.S. Lewis was a devout Christian and theologian who wrote to understand the relationship between the believer and God. The classic chronicles of Narnia are less fantasy, and they're more um, lengthy allusions to Christian beliefs. How do we meet them? Uh, they are hunting a lion, of course. And all of this is designed to invoke C.S. Lewis, Narnia, the children who become royalty, and Aslan, a.k.a. God. The mixing of sensibilities continues with the game warden of the mystical land presented as the following. Um, page 146, the character of Charn. Charn sat in a striped easy chair to the left of the love seat. He wore a sprightly yellow bow tie and suspenders that pulled his pants too high. Stockton thought he dressed like the benevolent host of a television program for small children, one where they practiced naming the colors and counting to five. Um, so we get this, this uh, introduction to a character who dresses um, innocently, but of course couldn't be farther from that. Hill shifts gears seamlessly between the two styles, with Stockton, Follows, and the boys at Charn's house. We, through Follow's eyes, are given the first glimpse of the world beyond the little door, and the results are almost painful to read. Um, now, I'm going to be honest here. I don't like the Narnia books, and it's simply a matter of what what do you what do you prefer? What what tastes do you enjoy? I it is too for me. It, it is it is because it is allegory. It's not. Yes, it falls under fantasy technically, but the the purpose and the intent um, is to be allegorical by nature. I, I just, it's just, it's not for me. Uh, but with that said, there is uh, an inarguable level of purity and innocence to these texts that um, it makes you think of the best of what childhood can be. So to watch what occurs here within the video that is presented to these characters to watch a vulnerable Mr. Tumnus, right? Because that's basically what we're looking at here. Um, get his head blown off by an overly armed board CEO. It's, it's deeply uncomfortable, but not as uncomfortable as the thought of the heads on the wall. These aren't just animals. They're highly intelligent creatures with their own culture. This isn't hunting. It's gleeful murder. It's also a sly commentary on how the super wealthy dehumanize anyone below their social and financial circles. I'm suddenly picturing the characters of Succession getting a chance to go through the door. Maybe that's where Cousin Greg comes from. 
Anyway, the victimization of these woodland magical creatures continues with the introduction of the imprisoned whirls, one of whom makes a plea to Christian, whose soul is less damaged than the rest of them, with the request, and along with it, a sense of the mythology of the world. Hatch flung aside the flung aside the Bazooka Joe strip and jumped to the bars. He looked through them at Christian, who shrank back into the couch. You, sir, I see shock in your eyes. Shock at the indecency and cruelty that you seize before you. Two intelligent feeling beings imprisoned by a brute who displays us to wring money out of his fellow sadists for a hunt with no honor. I pleads with you, run, run now. Spread the word that the sleeper may yet awake. Someone may yet revive her with the breath of kings so she may lead us against the prisoner, General Gorm, and free the lands of Palinode at last. Find Slowfoot the fawn. Oh, I know he still lives, but has only lost his way home or has been bewitched to forget himself somewise and tell him the sleeper still waits for him. What makes this story pop as well as it does, is that Hill is not content to just present the concept and let it play out. Every time you think you know where it's going, he pulls the rug out from underneath you. As they enter the door, we expect it to be a bloodbath. Maybe Christian will save the day. Maybe the sleeper will awaken, or other such magic will appear to stop the main characters, who happen to be the bad guys. But just when the story is about to um, fulfill its promise of wealthy hunters picking off magical creatures, Fallows turns on them murders Stockton and Peter, and chases after Charm. It's a completely unexpected moment. And as unexpected as that is, it's not as unexpected as the following sequence, which descends into a horror story. Or maybe more specifically, a dark fairy tale in which Christian, a boy lost in a strange and mysterious wood, is hunted by murderous foxes and fawns. Once Christian crosses the river to find the sleeper, the truth of Fallows is revealed. On page 175. This world's been holding its breath for a long time, Christian follows, said, but now it can breathe again. He unscrewed the next and raised it to her mouth. Breath, the boy whispered. The breath of kings, follows agreed with a mild nod. They're dying breaths. Breath of the lion and the elephant, the leopard and the buffalo, the great rhino. It will counteract the work of the prisoner, General Gorm, and wake her and wake the world with it. So, at this point, we realize that... Um, Follows is not follows at all, but Slowfoot, the um, the uh, the the mentioned fawn um, from from the the whirl, um, and so just it was a clever seating, and here is the reveal. And at this point in the book, you might think that Christian would be off the hook, or even better, um, you know, of this particular world. Hill has snuck in a few red herrings to lead you to this possibility throughout the, the text that he might really have come from Palinode, but uh, no. In another twist, it's revealed that he is not going to be saved from judgment. Though he never killed, he willingly aligned himself with those that did, and for that, he cannot be let to live. From there, the story shifts one last time to Charn, who is punished for his sins. And with the Awoken Sleeper's decree that he shall finally see daylight, it positions Charn as a classic monster, one who operates from the shadows of the night and burns upon daybreak. To the creatures of this land, he is that monster, so it's fitting that he is hanged at the dawning of the day. Up next, we have Late Returns. Um, 
This story begins uh, in what can only be referred to as beautiful tragedy. Our narrator, Johnny, um, tells us of his parents' suicides, um, and this is interwoven with beautiful descriptions of a kindly couple madly in love before giving us a love letter to libraries. And on page 183, Hill writes, For some reason, whenever I think about our weekend library visits, it's always the first snow of the year. My dad sits at one of those scarred wooden tables in the periodicals room, reading The Atlantic by the light of a green shaded lamp beneath a stained glass window that shows a monk inking an illustrated manuscript. My mother leads me to the children's library, where there are oversized couches in bright primary colors and sets me loose. When I need her, she will be reading Dorothy Sayers under the giant plastic statue of an owl in bifocals. So before I, I go further, I, I should remind you about 20th Century Ghost, not Ghosts, the actual story, 20th Century Ghost, which was a love letter to uh, movies. It was a love letter to the experience of watching movies in the theater, and um, it, it Hill beautifully created the importance of this physical location and the shared communal experience that you have when you go there. And similarly, uh, a lover of literature, a lover of libraries, uh, Hill is able to, to do the same uh, for, for libraries in, in this text. On page 205, he has a wonderful quote that just makes you think of libraries uh, in a way that maybe you never did before. In one sense, you know, it's perfectly unremarkable. It's quite common to enter a library and find yourself in conversation with the dead. The best minds of generations long gone crowded every bookshelf. They wait there to be noticed, to be addressed, and to reply in turn. In the library, the dead meet the living on collegial terms as a matter of course every day. And this is a wonderful ghost story. Um, and it's, it's a different type of ghost story, much in the way that 20th century ghost was a different type of ghost story. And I don't even really want to call it a ghost story because this, this is more about, yes, it's an understanding of the dead. Um, but it's more of time travel. And with any story involving time travel, it is important to have rules. Like I said, remember that the ghosts, they're not really ghosts. They're, they're visitors from another time who just so happen that they aren't alive in the present. And the ones that show up, the late returns, they are going to die. And their appearance in the present signifies that they are soon to die in the past. Um, but in the moment of the interaction with John, they are alive. Now, in most time travel stories, there's usually a, a, a rule or a warning about interfering in the past. Hill referenced it with the sound of, uh, the sound of thunder already. Uh, his father had uh, illustrated what happened with that in 1122-63. Usually, uh, when it comes to time travel, there are dire warnings. Um, that our, our main characters, our, our time travelers, are, are given. Um, whether it's from Doc Brown, whether it's from um, uh, the Ancient One in uh, Avengers Endgame, whether it is the, the Yellow Card Man um, in 1122-63. Uh, in so we, we always have some sort of 
you know, you have to be careful. But not here. That's what's great about this is that Hill just puts it on his head and says, nah, no, that, that's not what this is about. You know, here, John's boss, Ralph, is not only aware of the late returns, but he's casually unconcerned about junking up the space-time continuum. Writes, I was surprised when Ralph's mouth widened in a great grin. Wonderful. Good man. Good man? Well, if I fucked up, excuse me, messed up the space-time continuum. Like, what if now John Lennon doesn't get shot? That'd be wonderful too, don't you think? Yeah, but obviously, but you know what I'm talking about, the butterfly effect. He was smiling at me in a way I found mildly maddening. What would happen if I gave him a book about the Columbine massacre? Did he ask for a book about school shootings? No. Well, there you go then. He must have seen the frustration in my face, because he softened a little, bumped his shoulder against mine in an avuncular sort of way. Lauren Hayes, who you should meet, thought they could only find their way to the bookmobile at the end of their story, and that they could only borrow books that wouldn't hurt them, that wouldn't scratch time's record. This guy you met today, did he have trouble seeing the books? I nodded. My arms were crawling with goosebumps. Meaning the man from 1965 had been less uncanny than this calm, reasonable conversation about it over coffee with my employer. He could only take one that wouldn't threaten anything, and even then it had to be one that was just right for him. When you consider that, well, just imagine if you lived in the 50s and liked the twists in Agatha Christie novels. Now imagine that right before you died, you had a chance to read Gone Girl. You'd die for sure, of happiness. For all we know, that's what happened to the man you saw today. Don't say that, I objected, flinching. That's awful. I can think of worse ways to go than with a good book in my hand, especially if it was one that I had no right to ever read because it wasn't going to be published until after I was dead. If you don't quit on me, you'll see others now and then, and you won't be able to give them anything that hurts them. But what if I give them something that changes history? How would you know? He asked me, smiling again. Maybe you did. Maybe this crap is all your fault. He looked around the cafe, customers on their smartphones, checkout girl ringing up coffees on a tablet computer, and back to me. And he looked pleased with himself. The history you have is the only history you know. Besides, people come to the library to improve themselves or to be entertained or to discover something new about the world. How can that be bad? I believe that the late returns who visit the old bookmobile are just having themselves a little literary dessert before the restaurant kicks them out. So it's like what, a reward from God for living a good life? Why can't it be a reward from the library, he said, for returning overdue books in spite of the inconvenience of being dead? Ah, oh, so fantastic. Um, it frames the experience not as something spooky or unnatural or dangerous, but something quite lovely. Not unlike the main character in Yur, uh, who had access to all of the multiverse's reading materials. It's an interesting choice to position the point of view through John's eyes and how he encounters people from the past times. If you look at it from their perspective, he's a book peddler from the future. That's an interesting story to tell as well, but Hill decided to ground it in the present and make it not about the shock of these uncanny interactions, but about the human connection and the healing from deep grief of heavy loss. Much like Danny Torrance helped the hospice patients ease into death in Dr. Sleep, John is able to bring some measure of comfort to the late returns, and in turn, they help him move forward from the immediacy of his parents' suicide. Of all the stories in this collection, this is the one that I'm thinking about the most. It's just so sincerely hopeful. From the camaraderie of the old men that includes both a gay man and a staunch Trump supporter, to the catharsis that sets um, 
parents and children have in the wake of parent death and suicide. How Hill manages to take this subject matter and make it hopeful is beyond me, but he does it. And then there's a, a, a character in here, an author, uh, Brad Dolan, um, who to me, and I could be wrong, write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com if I um, am interpreting this incorrectly, to me feels like a, a, a Vonnegut stand-in, Kurt Vonnegut, who, um, well, Brad Dolan in this uh, short story commits suicide um, Vonnegut did not die with a, um, with a suicide, but there had been an attempt at one point, um, I believe. So th there are some parallels there, but just that the nature of these books seem to have a whimsical philosophy, um, that really speaks to the human condition, uh, the way that Vonnegut, uh, you know, wrote. So what's beautiful about this is that John helps his mother who dies and the act creates the book that brad writes um, brad kills himself in the end but only after coming to terms with his life through time john was able to provide healing to a mother and her son both decades apart conversely both of them were able to help him heal though he didn't meet his own mother in the bookmobile it's important that he met a mother and though she didn't commit suicide the way that his mother had her son ultimately does making them linked and this also not only speaks to the grieving process and the hope that comes from unexpected kindness from others to, to help you through this, um, it also speaks to that, that need to watch or read or listen to just one last thing. There's a, there's a scene in Kick-Ass, I'm really dating myself now, but when Kick-Ass first came out, um, the, the main character... Uh, he's about to die, and as he dies, he's lamenting the fact that he is going to die before he gets to see the end of Lost. Um, you know, and, and it's, you know, it, I think that speaks to all of us one way or another. It, it's why it's always so beautiful when just recently J.J. Uh, Abrams and, and Disney and Star Wars, Lucasfilm, they were able to show a dying Star Wars fan uh the rise of skywalker before it was released in theaters and there's a a real beauty in the the kindness and compassion in allowing someone to get that to just make it a little bit easier for them and that's what this book is about and there is you know it, I don't think that death will ever be beautiful i don't think that there's ever really a right a way to write it where it isn't the most painful and saddest thing that can ever occur. But this is definitely a step in the right direction to show that in the wake of death, there are others that care and they will do what they can to make life easier for you in the end of life. Um, and, and it's just, I've been thinking a lot about this story. It is just so hopeful and compassionate. And I think that, you know, obviously that is something that we need more of in this world. Um, there is an Easter egg in here. One of the, the ghosts, the late returns, they live at 1919 Gilead Road, which is a shout out to the Dark Tower series. Have All I Care Is About You. Okay, we are immediately thrust into an unfamiliar world with reference points like the Spoke, Sparkle Froth, Hideware, Murder Game, and a father who was once a resurrection man. 
He can, uh, Hill continues world building with more mentions of the hive, the mermaid, text messages in the eye, something called the furnace club, magma bubbling below the blue diamond floor, the carnival district, clockworks. Um, I, guys, I got five pages in and I just didn't care. Um, it was just too much. It was too much world building, too much um, uh, the sci-fi vernacular, uh, just getting in the way of telling the story. Um, and we learn that, very matter-of-factly, that this strange world, it's our world, just deeper into the future, and uh, that we are now on the, the earliest steps at the beginning of the path that's going to lead um, down the road to this. This is a very dark, bleak little tale, um, and to me it feels like Joe Hill testing out his Black Mirror chops. Um, and for those of you who are unfamiliar, Black Mirror is a uh, very portentous, uh, dark examination of the role of technology in our lives. It is crazy to think that those early seasons, how... If you go back and watch them now and you've never seen them before, you just might think... Um, that they're, they, they, might, they might be hokey, they might be derivative, they, they, you know, but at the time, they, they preceded the technological revolution that we have now. Um, and it, it's, it's actually all the more chilling because Charlie Booker was very accurate in his depiction of the way that things can go down. So this to me seems very much in the vein of Black Mirror, the, the pessimism, the darkness the technological bent, um, the inhumanity, uh, the, yeah, it, it just very much seems like Black Mirror. And um, like any good piece of sci-fi, uh, the unfamiliar world is familiar enough in ways to make the reader laugh and love, regret, or cringe. You know, in this case, despite the strangeness of the, the like, the, the clockworks and everything, you know, we, we, we can easily envision a biotechnical world uh, orbiting a dying sun, people who turn to technology for comfort, where software is integrated into ourselves and the death of the physical self isn't permanent anymore. Um, so, I mean, it, it's, it's done well, but despite all this, I, it's just... Uh, I I just I find it too much with with too little to say that hasn't been said before. This uh, is the first misfire um, in this collection, um, and a rare misfire at all from from Joe Hill. And then we have Thumbprint. This is a a mean little story. It it took me three days to read it, and I found it deeply unpleasant. Um, its main character is not likable, which is fine. Not every story has to be appealing and palatable. Um, you know, some things are meant to be challenging, and this is challenging, uh, and that's okay. Uh, she is punished in the end for her transgressions during wartime, um, and she finds herself in basically the same situation as those of her prisoners when she was in the war. Um, but there is a concern that I have with this book um, or the story because there is a grindhouse quality to it um, and in the end the villain of the story who is a soldier a former soldier uh, the villain is so unhinged it's it's borderline exploitative I mean we have crazy with a capital C plus vet 
that's a loaded combination that I think that we have to be very careful um, how we how we portray that. And it's not it's not as if that isn't something that we shouldn't explore where mental illness meets wartime or the effects of war or the demands um, pressed upon our soldiers. I mean, all of that is something that should be explored for sure. And there is horror to be mined from it. I mean, I don't think that there's really, I don't know if anything is really off limits in horror. I just wonder, it's all about how well you're able to uh, convey the, the aspect of horror and, and how it relates to real life. But in this case, I don't know. I, I tend more to think that it, it's a bit too pulpish, a bit too grindhouse, a bit too exploitative for it to sit well with me. Um, it is well written. The, the mystery hook uh, throughout is compelling. Um, but I, it, it left a, a bad taste in my mouth. And, and maybe it was just because it was coming off the heels of, like I said, the misfire that I felt from the, the, the previous one. Um, I don't know. Uh, but th these two are the ones that really stand out for me as to just not really liking um, in, in the collection. But I, I want to know your thoughts. Am I off base? Am I being too sensitive? You know, that's another, it's just another question. You know, am I, um, yeah, am I approaching it from the wrong perspective? Is there, is there another perspective that anybody else has? Because I have never served um, so I, I really can't say about the authenticity of what's occurring here. Um, but just let me know. Uh, write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Okay, now let's talk about the devil on the staircase. And before I talk about the devil on the staircase, I need to talk about um, a non-Joe Hill-related uh, novel, and that is The Raw Shark Texts, The Raw Shark Texts by Stephen Hall. This is a book that no one really talks about, and it has sort of just gotten lost um, and, and, and just piled under other, other novels in the, in the 2000s. This is an early aughts book um, that came out that was described as Alice in Wonderland meets The Matrix. That it, it, and that doesn't really do it justice. But I will say that this is a novel that meant a lot to me personally when I read it. And I, I wish others were able to discover it um, and enjoy it the, the same way that I did. Now, um, interaction with, um, with fiction and with art is deeply subjective. When I, when I review anything on this podcast, I try to be as objective as possible. Um, but I mean, we all come to something feeling a certain way. Um, we all have our own baggage. We all come to a, a piece of art at a different point in our lives, informed by certain opinions that we have that might change over time, whatever, you know, we are human. We are fallible to being subjective. And I read the Raw Shark Times at a very impressionable, well, not impressionable, but very potent time in my life. You know, the, my, my mid to late 20s um, where life just opened up and everything was bright and everything was new and I was challenging myself in, in many ways. And 
Um, you know, it's it just, you know, it, it, it was for me the age that King was at and the feeling that he felt when he wrote all about being 19. That's how I felt at the, at the time um, where Jerome Wireman in, um, in Dumaki, going back to Dumaki again, when uh, Edgar paints him a picture of, of himself, of Jerome, and Jerome looks at it and says, this isn't me. And Edgar says, it is. And Jerome says, maybe it was once on the best day of the best year of my life. And uh, so that, that was around the time that that's when I absorbed the raw shark text. So I say all this because I acknowledge that it might be deeply personal for me and you might not have that same experience while reading it. But um, it is a story about just, it's, a, it's an existential tale of a man living in the world. Um, it's about memory. It's about uh, interacting with the world. It's about technology. It's about mourning. It's about love. It's about loss. It's about all of the, the big beats in life that you would have. And it's, it's about a dude running away from uh, a conceptual shark made up of words and thoughts and ideas that if it bites you, it, it takes away a part of yourself. It takes away your memory. It takes away who you are. Um, you know, elements of the concept can actually be found in Twin Peaks The Return with the, the shattering of the Dale Cooper persona into Mr. C, into Dougie Jones, into the, the Richard version of, of Cooper in the, in the end. Um, very similar. There, there's a tragedy to that, that, that who you are when you're trying to be your best um, might not last and that you might change into something almost unrecognizable uh, against your will that is at the, the core of the Ross Shark text. And I say all of this not because the content is similar to The Devil on a Staircase, but the, the manner with which uh, Stephen Hall was able to convey all of this to the reader, he did it um, in a way that some might say is gimmicky. For me, I thought it really reinforced the themes that were occurring uh, within the text. Um, and that was to manipulate the words on the page uh, in order to, uh, you know, to, like I said, to, to, to reinforce whether it be the conflict or the characters or the themes. Um, so if you see the, the, the devil on the staircase, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. The, the words will be rearranged into images, into word art. Um, there, is a, there is one particular panel where the, the words drift up from the bottom of the page, and it looks like something has just left the bottom of the ocean and uh, heading up towards the surface, and you just the words themselves are just the sediment on the bottom of the ocean um, as the, the Ludovician, which is the name of the, the shark, um, makes its way towards the main character. Um, it, it, to me, it's the, it, it was never gimmicky. It was something uh, that, that, that made the reading experience so enjoyable, and it, it really supported what was occurring within the content. And for any, I, I think that because it came out so close in proximity to um, the House of Leaves, uh, I think that the success and the, the conversation and the mystery and the hubbub around that novel, uh, which is definitely worth reading as well, that is a mind trip of a novel that it plays with text similarly in different ways, I think that that overshadowed what the Rorschach texts 
um, could contribute to uh, the cultural conversation at the time. Uh, the Devil on the Staircase. Um, this is Joe Hill's exploration into uh, conceptual, textual word art. Um, so he 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 can he continues this experiment um, that we had seen before with Stephen Hall, uh, describing the the narrator's place of birth, um, which is uh, an elevate, elevated geography that is reinforced through the physical organization of the text itself, which is designed to look like a spire, a tower, or a mountain. And then he begins to describe the steps. Uh, and the left hand of the text on the bottom of the page functions as the steps themselves rising to the top of the structure uh, is the word the, a fitting word to represent an apex as the village is the subject of the paragraph and is placed at the uppermost point of the text. So this is, this is the level that, that Hill is working on right now. Um, as the story continues, Hill keeps playing. The paragraphs trade off from left to right vertically, creating wedges of a staircase itself. He will at times interrupt it with deviations appropriate to the idea within the paragraph, like when uh, he shapes uh, a chunk of floating of text floating above the rest, like a cloud as he describes, quote unquote, our home in the sky. But for the most part, it's the, the trade-off of, of wedge to wedge, which resembles the stairs um, as the main character descends into murderous rage born out of jealousy and literally descends the steps into hell. And there at the bottom, when he meets uh, a little beautiful boy of golden hair, the, the devil himself or the, the child of the devil, um, which is, could be the same thing, once he has entered hell, the landing... There is no more need to organize the text into stairs. And then the story takes a break from the experimental structure and replaces it with traditional paragraphical organization. The scene takes place in hell with the devil, um, or the devil's child, uh, tempting the narrator with magical and evil gifts. The one he chooses is a mechanical bird whose song allows its owner to tell any lie. Any boobo heads out there? I don't know. That's, exact, that's what I thought of when I when I heard him describe this uh, mechanical bird um, and this, it, it, it allows its owner to uh, tell any lie he or she wants to and that lie will be conveyed and the narrator then flees back up the stairs and once more the text reshapes itself into a resolution in which he grows into power and respect uh, and this is a horrifying commentary on the world that he has brought from hell this bird that allows its owner to gain power and wealth and status um, through uh, the, the corruption of the rest of the world, through lies which are accepted as truth. Um, and the, 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 this bird has offspring which flies out into the world. And this is a parable for um, an origin story of um, based out of myth that, that, that tells the... Oh, the, um, the, the explanation for the, 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 the decay of truth that we see um, in our world today um, where, where you can choose the truth that you want to believe in, that uh, there is no value to veracity anymore, that anyone can just say whatever they want and they don't have to look at facts and the truth is whatever, it, it's truth and opinion. Um, are the same thing now and 
funnily enough, this uh, pairs very well with the next story, uh, Twittering from the Circus of the Dead. So we, we have a story um, with uh, the Devil on the Staircase, which, though it doesn't mention Twitter, it doesn't mention social media, it doesn't mention fake news, it doesn't mention lies, it doesn't mention propaganda, it doesn't, it doesn't mention any of that. It just provides the, 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 the origin story for what becomes later. You, you can add that in your own uh, it, it definitely is a direct through line between where he leaves off with this, this main character in The Devil on the Staircase to 2019 and Twitter being what it is. So, uh, Twittering from the Circus of the Dead. Now, when I first started reading it, I thought it was just going to be a quick little satire about a series of tweets from a teen who is so hooked on her phone that she winds up live tweeting from the afterlife when she and her family get into a car crash on vacation. That's what I thought it was going to be. Um, instead, in, it, it turns into a truly original nightmare um, where, where they, on, on the road, um, they stop off at uh, a tourist attraction. They go to a circus, um, and the, its its ringleader in the center is this girl on stilts, and how she genuinely looks scared, and she's trying to talk to the crowd, but she's horrified and crying, and there's just again going back to that surreality that Hill is able to craft with his stories, like um, my father's mask. Um, you know, he it's fully on display here where our main characters have entered this nightmarish world of true horror and vulnerability. Um, and this is conveyed through the main character's dawning realization that something is wrong. It's wrong. It's dreadfully wrong. You know, you have stepped into a nightmare where dream logic, uh, you know, takes hold and, and, and you are so vulnerable. You are just prey to the, the, the lion and the monster of this nightmare. Um, and then the, 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 her little brother all of a sudden is, is a part of the show. And it's just like, wait, when did this happen? You know, when did, you know, the, the brother, you know, he, he gets called down. Now he's in the show, you know, what is going on here? And then the, the ringleader, the, the, the girl, she's in there. She's now talking to the audience saying that while you're here, they take your car, you're never going to be found. And then there's the realization that all of the many members of the audience, not all, um, are dead people propped up in place and that there actually are zombies in here um and uh, the lights go out and then everyone is eaten and then the the people in charge of the circus start tweeting from the girls account it's all just horrific it's truly upsetting in all of the right ways so this is a really good kind of palate cleanser reminder of the 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 we have the the master of horror stephen king and we have the prince of horror joe hill um and when he turns it on it's really upsetting and this is one of those ones that's really upsetting not in a socio-political context the way that some of the others were um but just in terms of whoa that was messed up this is one of those examples of whoa that was messed up. That was a that was a messed up story. Um, that sticks with you, but not in a way that like you look around your life and it makes you feel bad. It's just a really good horror story. And up next we have Mums. And of all of the stories in the collection, this one might be the scariest. Hill kicks it off right away with high tension. The reader understands that there's danger, that the mother, Bloom, 
is clearly trying to make a break for it while her husband is away. But Hill wisely keeps the perspective on Jack, the son, who doesn't understand what's occurring. When Hank, the husband, his cousin, and goons arrive, the danger swirls. And though there hasn't been any violence or any threat, Hill has kicked the book off with enough information about Hank to uh, indicate that he is dangerous. He's paranoid, doesn't trust the media, doesn't trust cartoons, processed sugar, owns a lot of guns. You know, don't trust this guy. We learn more that he isn't just conspiratorially right-wing, but he's a separatist. He's trying to break away from the United States. All right, so that's where he's operating from. Um, the government had raided the land prior to this, looking for guns, which they never found. And at this point, Bloom just wants her son to have a better life. But it's not meant to be, as her escape is cut short. She's separated from her son, um, is, uh, and soon what occurs is most assuredly murder. It is later verified that it is. Um, and not long after that, we are introduced to a wily, strange old woman selling eggs by the side of the road. The story kicked off with Bloom attempting to flee to her um, like great-grandmother's home, so the reader should have an inkling who this is. Like a classic trickster figure, uh, a Leland Gaunt or an Elvid from Fair Extension, um, or even the, the boy on the stairs from The Devil's Staircase earlier in this collection, she's hawking items that will result with unforeseen circumstances. In this case, for Jack... It's seeds of mums to be planted, which he and Beth, um, his, uh, his cousin's wife, um, plant at the, the grave of his mother. While Jack has lustful thoughts of Beth, increasingly surreal nightmares of being buried, he comes to realize that his father is planning an attack on uh, the ATF and IRS while threatening to kill Jack before the feds could take him away. And then the anti-government military thriller that has been at the forefront mutates into what feels like a lost chapter from Alvin Schwartz's Scary Stories to Read in the Dark, um, which we have on page 369. He has something to do with the sick, ugly energy coursing through him. It feels like if he doesn't break something, he'll puke, but there's nothing breakable in arm's reach. So instead, he grabs a fistful of stalks protruding from the ground. The roots of the mum are embedded surprisingly deep, have an astonishing grip on the soil. He grits his teeth and pulls, and the dirt begins to fall away. It's almost as if the green stalks are attached to some absurdly heavy gourd. He pulls, shuts his eyes, pulls harder, and opens his eyes, and he can't scream because there's no air left in his lungs. He has pulled a head out of the ground. Not a whole head, only the top part. From the bridge of the nose up, it is a woman's face. No, more than that. It is his mother's face. Though her skin is greenish and waxy and her hair isn't hair at all, but long, tough strands of green fiber plant stalks. Her eyes are shut. Jack flings himself back, almost to the foot of the grave. He struggles to cry out and can't force any sound from his throat. Her eyes roll open. The eyeballs look like soft white onions. There are no irises, no pupils, no sign of sight. Then she winks. As Jack continues to wrestle with the idea that his 
father is a bad man, he musters up enough courage to go to the graveyard one night to discover the mums he's planted are all now rubbery, plant-like versions of his mother who had returned after death to protect her son. And like Audrey too from Little Shop of Horrors, she needs Jack to be her Seymour Krellborn to feed her. Hill keeps twisting the storyline, um, you know, like roots underneath the earth. And when Jack leads Beth, who he now realizes has been the one to kill his mother, to the gravesite, he wounds her to set her up for the plant mother to finish the job. When nothing happens, all the talk of mental illness hits the reader clearly. We are made to question the truth to what Jack had really seen. How much of this is in his head? And with no unplant, undead plant lays to help him, Jack has to do the job himself. He then turns his vengeful eyes upon his father and cousin, both of whom he tricks into thinking that the government has come. He lures them into a barn, locks them in, and lets them blow themselves up. As he leaves this world behind in the truck that he's been trained to drive, he stops to pick up the strange old woman who the plant mother had claimed was his great-great-great-grandmother. So this is a, a weird, strange little tale uh, that I, I liked reading a lot. Um, the descriptions of the, the undead plant woman uh, were done really well. The, the dream sequences were done really well. And that blending of um, just madness and horror and just wondering what is true and what was not, uh, Hill straddled that line very well. Up next in the collection is In the Tall Grass, um, the second of the two uh, short stories that are co-written with Stephen King. Okay, I'm not going to review that right now. I'm making the executive decision to actually, I, I was not planning on doing this. I was just planning on uh, reviewing it within this episode, but we're approaching almost two hours of review as it stands. I love In the Tall Grass. I have a lot to say about In the Tall Grass. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to release a separate episode about this that will come out next week in which I review the short story In the Tall Grass and compare it and contrast it uh, and analyze how bad the uh, Netflix movie is compared to this. I, I didn't like it. I will watch um, the that movie again. Maybe I'll like it on the second time around now that I've readjusted my expectations. So I will go in deep into both the short story in the tall grass and the uh, Vincenzo Natale Netflix movie um, next week. Hopefully next week. But that will be coming shortly. Just made that decision right now as I record into this microphone. So I do have a lot to say about In the Tall Grass and it probably should be its own uh, episode. So if you are listening to this uh, at a different point in time, uh, then you probably have that episode that you can listen to. But if you're listening to this on the day that I release this, uh, just wait, it will be coming. Okay, then we have the uh, short story closer, You Are Released. Um, now talk about how to hook an audience, guys. On page four, uh, 435, he writes, uh, Holder is in his third scotch and playing it cool about the famous woman, woman sitting next to him when all the TVs in the cabin go black and a message in white block text appears on the screens. An announcement is in progress. Static hisses from the public address system. 
The pilot has a young voice, the voice of an uncertain teenager addressing a crowd at a funeral. Folks, this is Captain Waters. I've had a message from our team on the ground, and after thinking it over, it seems proper to share with you. There's been an incident at Anderson Air Force Base in Guam, and the PA cuts out. There's a long, suspenseful silence. I am told, Waters continues abruptly, that U.S. Strategic Command is no longer in contact with our forces there or with the regional governor's office. There are reports from offshore that, that there was a flash, some kind of flash. And it goes on. Um, so I did not take notes as I read this, honestly, because I was just too engrossed um, in reading it. It was a captivating tale about people being with one another at the end of the world. It just so happens that the end of the world is taking place in an, an airplane mid-flight. Um, and that, that summary is not doing justice to it because Hill, in a very short amount of time, just bounces back and forth between the different passengers, giving enough different perspectives as the escalation between uh, the countries of the world lead to the, the end of the world. Um, and it's bleak, it's sad, it's tragic. There's moments of beauty in there as people find each other in the end as the, the, the dawning realization comes that this plane is never going to touch down upon ground again. And it is really good. It's really well done um, and a fitting conclusion to the end of the, the book, kind of. Um, one thing that I love about Joe Hill is that he he always he always adds a little post credit uh, work at his end, a little a little button at the end, um, little a little bite left over after you finish the meal, and he concludes with a, a little story called "A Little Sorrow" about a man who buys a little sorrow that whispers poisonous thoughts in his ear, but he's still grateful for its company. So, guys. This is my review of Full Throttle. It is good. Of all of the stories in there, I only didn't like two of them. Um, you know, one I just did not like and the other I just kind of have questions about. But every, every other one is an instant classic. For those of you who have listened to my review of 20th Century Ghosts, know that I think that Hill is operating at his best when he is writing short stories. It's not to say that he can't write novels. Like... Heart-shaped box is great. Horns is one of the best things I've ever read. Nosferatu is a lot of fun. The Fireman is a lot of fun. But his short story work is next level. Um, and I was so happy when this came out and that it lived up. It's a worthy successor to 20th Century Ghosts, which is, which is saying a lot. And I look forward to seeing what is next from Joe Hill. So, read it. Buy it. Read it. Um, ask for it for, for Christmas, which is right around the corner. Um, and so, uh, here is the future of the Stephen King cast while I have you. Okay. Um, I Like I said, uh, the next episode will be my review of In the Tall Grass, and it will be my review of the uh, Netflix Tall Grass as well. Then we have a couple things to look forward to. We have The Outsider, which will be coming out in January, if my schedule permits, and if it's something that I enjoy, 
I will review The Outsider, um, hopefully on a weekly basis. And then we have Lock and Key on Netflix, which will be coming out. And fingers crossed it lives up to uh, Lock and Key, the series. Similarly, we have the sequel series to Lock and Key coming out. Gabriel Rodriguez and Joe Hill announced at San Diego Comic-Con this year that um, the adventures of uh, the, the, the Lock children um, would be continuing. Um, so I will be picking that up um, to review it. Honestly, I really liked the conclusion of Lock and Key. I don't know if we should be going back there, um, but I will enter it with an open mind. And it's not as if Hill has not been exploring this world. He has released, he and, and Gabriel Rodriguez have uh, released a series of, of one-shots um, that have taken place in the Key House in previous eras to show us um, earlier incarnations of the Locke family as they have interacted with the, the, the Keys. Um, so we, we have some history there, and I wonder if that history is going to play a role in, um, in, in the future of the, the Locke family. So all of that is something that we have to look forward to. But immediately up next, uh, I will be reviewing my, uh, releasing my review of In the Tall Grass, the, the one uh, story that I did not cover in this collection, and the Netflix movie. So guys, thank you for sticking with me for almost two hours here on Joe Hill's uh, superb collection of short stories, Full Throttle. I strongly recommend it. And please, if anything I have said um, makes you want to write in, don't hesitate. Write in to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com, and I implore you, if you do have a few minutes on your hands, please write in and leave a review on iTunes as it really greatly helps keep the Stephen King cast um, high up uh, on the search if you do Stephen King. So that, um, that, that really helps me out, and it helps get the Stephen King cast out there. So if you enjoy the Stephen King cast, if you enjoy this episode, please leave a review. Leave and write a review. It really gets it, uh, it, really gets it out there. Okay, guys, that is all that I have for this week, but I will see you here next week when I review In the Tall Grass. In the meantime, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast.